welcome CFE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. Participants actually got quite a lot out of it. Um, They did all develop some critical consciousness on an individual level. And there was a couple of them that went on to sort of develop it enough to move out into the wider sort of political arena. Welcome to FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher Saxon and my partner in crime is It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Um lights are getting a little bit no, not lights. Nights. <laughs> Nights are getting a little bit lighter. Um, okay, so we are here in this edition of the podcast with Sharon Jones. Welcome, Sharon. Hello there, thank you for inviting me along Oh, it's lovely to have you So Sharon works for the Bedford College Group She's a lecturer in health and social care and child care and education But, you know, while as if she wasn't busy enough doing all of that She has managed to um, get through her doctorate And she's um, recently published a book And that's why she's here as if she's not brilliant enough. <laughs> that's why, that is why she's here She's going to be telling us a bit about that So, um, so Sharon... Um, Tell us a bit about you and your sort of life in the world of further education first. Okay, so um, I've been with the Bedford College Group for just under two years now. I actually started working in the library and then progressed into teaching, which was kind of something I wanted to do many years ago, but I kind of went off on the research route. Um, So I currently teach in two areas, so health and social care and childcare and education. Obviously, my passion is in education. That's my whole background. Um, and it's a very busy life. That's all I can say. <laughs> so so um, t- tell us about where, where, where the, was it a PhD or an education doctor, an EDD? It's a PhD. Yeah. So h- how did that come about? Um. I first started university to do my very first degree with absolutely no vision of doing a PhD, of going any further than my first degree. But sort of towards the second year, I started working with children that had behavioural problems, worked in specialist settings, and I turned my attention to education. And from that, I kind of went on to do a master's, I specialised in special educational needs, And then from that, I thought, why not do some research, do a PhD? And yeah, that's how I got into it. Um, It it took me about 15 years to complete the whole process, but (laughs) not the PhD, but the first degree through to the PhD. (laughs) I thought you meant your PhD then. No, no, Bearing in mind that Alistair and I are about year three. We did not want to be hearing that that at all. Um, Okay, so... um, Tell us um, about the focus of your PhD then. So my focus is on secondary schooling and education, so in the state system, and more specifically for working class groups. So I looked at sort of the lower working classes, um, if that's kind of how you want to word it. I had my focus was on sort of behaviour when I first went into it. And I just assigned it to social class and it more it came more out of my own background growing up and sort of all the questions that I was asking and what I was inquisitive about, which is kind of why I, I turned my attention to it. Mm. What, what was the kind of res- 
your lead research question then for for your study? Um, oh gosh, now you've got me thinking. It's like <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? We spend ages writing these things, and then we can't yeah. remember. <laughs> I think, yeah, because I, I mean, I done my PhD part time over six years, mm-hmm. so obviously I've done the book since then and <laughs> turned my attention into work and stuff. Um, but I was more uh, sort of passionate about l- learning sort of the reproductive nature of mm-hmm. social inequalities of obviously working class groups. So the reproduction that goes on through state schooling. Yeah. So so what was your, uh, tell us a bit about your methodology then. So it's a qualitative study and I used two methodologies. I kind of combined them into one. So I used critical ethnography so that I was part of the participants' lives. I took that critical stance so we could sort of dig a little deeper and expose the injustices. And then I combined it with a visual intervention. So it was basically giving something back to the participants so they could see their lives in front of them, if you like. They could see the injustices for themselves to help them develop critical consciousness. Mm, okay. Um, oh, gosh, I'm just thinking there's lots of ways I could take this now. We'll be here all night. No, we can't do that. Um, what What do you think the participants got out of being part of your study participants actually got quite a lot out of it um they did all develop some critical consciousness on an individual level and there was a couple of them that went on to sort of develop it enough to move out into the wider sort of political arena um when they first come into it i I did it on an individual level. So the first sets of interviews that I did was all in um, individual so that I could build up trust with them. And then we sort of got it into group work. Um, basically, what I'd done was built up the trust, pulled out some themes, and I took the themes forward and we came together as a group. And one of the, one of the participants did say to me at the end, which I did find really fascinating, is was although they recognised the commonalities that they had through the research, if they'd met the other participants without any form of research, there's no way they would have thought they had anything in common with them and they wouldn't have even Mm. spoke. So I did find that quite a fascinating thing to say. So obviously we always, we shouldn't, but we do sort of form opinions of other people. And obviously this is what they were talking about. They would do, they wouldn't, necessarily associate themselves with somebody else they wouldn't think they share anything in common mm. which is why they wouldn't speak to them so the way that I'd done the research yeah they at the end of it they they became friends and it was like mm. it's actually amazing to see it so. so yeah gosh sounds like powerful stuff so there must have been quite a rigorous ethics process then if you were doing you know th- this kind of research with young people um, well, mine were adults. So oh, when I okay. first put the ethics proposal in, it was initially for 16 to 18 year olds. Mm. And there was a lot of issues just trying to get past gatekeepers in schools. I had I was called in for interviews and then I was told, yeah, we'll speak to the head teachers. Then they'd come back to me and said, no, nope, the head teachers are saying it's not the right time for this type of research. And there was just so many barriers. So in the end, because I was actually doing, I was running like arts-based classes in local communities and I did have access to adults. So I thought, I'll 
turn my attention to adults, it might be easier. Um, and then I went through obviously ethics a lot easier because they, mm. they were adults. Oh, um, okay. but because so you were of, inviting them to think back about their days. It's oh, yeah, see. so it was okay. their lived experiences. So mm-hmm. they they did talk about their school experiences and then they talked about their lived experiences post-school. Um but in terms of having like the visual intervention, the ethics procedures, then you have to think on your feet in terms of ethics. You have to be really mindful of obviously information that's being shared. We did the part of the visual intervention. They created a five minute participatory film and that was done in a public place. So obviously we had to be mindful that nothing was recognized if you like so you the ethics was a thing that went on all the way through it rather than just mm. i've put it in it's been passed that's it it, it was a continuous thing uh, to do yeah so we do like to highlight things in this podcast that i think demystify stuff and i think that's something i've learned i think i must be on my third <laughs> revisit to my ethics oh. <laughs> I, keep, I keep adding things in you know um so yeah i i think that's something that perhaps is not understood before you start a phd journey is really just that the important place that that whole ethics process how much space that will you know potentially take up in your journey so useful to hear that um okay so you knocked out this thesis sharon (laughs) and then you thought and now I'll write a book. So tell us yes. how how um, how the whole idea of publishing a book came about. Um, through the support of my PhD supervisor, um, as I was going through, obviously he introduced me to many people. Sharon, talk about your research. And obviously people said to me at the end of it, because it was a powerful thing to do, you need to publish it. So the thought was there. But then when I got to the end, I thought, oh, should I just park it now? I've been doing it for six years. Do I need to? Um, But then when I was actually going through the Fiverr, the um, external examiner said to me, this needs to be published. Mm. So that kind of just swung it for me. And yeah, I put the proposal into the publishers it came back with some strong reviews and yeah the rest was history because then then I was doing it I signed the contract and went for it (laughs) and then you were doing it well I'm going to hand over to Alistair actually because he's going to ask you a bit more about that whole process of um you know book writing because it's a world in you know in research that that people often have questions about yep so yeah that's it right so somebody says this needs to be published what then? I mean, where do you start with that? Where, where do you even begin with that process? I must admit, it was um, a minefield to begin with. It was like, right, okay. Um, I did have quite a lot of support. My PhD supervisor, he was really good even after I'd finished and I'd got my doctorate. He took me through the steps of what I'd have to do, how I'd have to apply. Um, and then you do get a lot of support from the publishers. So you, you get allocated almost like a mentor, if you like. So somebody's there taking you through each step. This is what you need to do now. First stage is you put your proposal in with uh, like some draft chapters. It goes off to reviewers. If it comes back and it's quite a strong review, then they progress in terms of coming up with the contract. So the the people behind the scenes work with you really well to get you through the whole process. So it's now I've done it. It is 
really straightforward and it is quite easy, but it is very daunting before you do it if you've never done it before. Yeah, I can I can imagine that even when you know you say it out there and it it sounds like it was much easier in retrospect, but I'm sure while you were in it during that time, even with the support, it still felt like a huge mountain to to work through. Um, yeah. It, uh, well, it, uh, I'll just add to that because obviously, um, when you sign the contract, um, obviously there's so many words you have a word limit to stick to, and it was a lot less than my PhD words. So I had to go in and update chapters, and I had to take stuff out. So it was a massive mountain to sort of climb. Even though there are people there to support you, you, you're still on your own to get it written, to have it done. And it gets bounced backwards and forwards as well for edits. And there's a lot to get through. Yeah, I can imagine. I was just going to say actually how how similar was it to your thesis, but by the sounds of it, actually quite different by the time it had gone backwards and forwards. Then. Well, to be honest with you, the findings chapters, the, um, the discussion chapters that are, are wrote up that uh, the participants' voices come through, mm-hmm that didn't change at all because it was their experiences of school. It's been their experiences post-school and sort of projections for the future. So that stayed the same. That hadn't changed. So I was able to keep those chapters in. Um, It was more, obviously, I'd had to put in sort of like the theory that I used and I had to update because obviously we'd had a change in government. So there was a change in policy. And yeah, it was, okay, I've got so much more to do. So it's still very close to obviously what I wrote, but I just had to really reduce the the number of words that I had. And actually, I mean, the topic you're talking about here, hugely important and capturing the stories of of those individuals and the impact that it's had on them and moving forward. What do you, what impact do you hope the book will have? Um, I'm hoping that it will obviously spark other forms of research that's very similar it's for me um, the methodology that I used in this it is really unique and that was one of the things I was told by my external examiner Um, it's not a common thing that you come across where two methodologies like I've used are brought together to to do this kind of research to pull out the experiences of people Um, so I hope that anybody that reads it that's interested in doing research would go actually yes I might try that with this age group like the 16 to 18 or it could work with larger groups if you like um because it's small scale and it was based on sort of doing intervention as well it would benefit policymakers if they would pick it up and they're interested in it um it would be definitely beneficial to like other teachers students anybody that's sort of looking at those different experiences and how the education system works and how you hear it all the time the education system is set up to fail the working classes so it'll be of interest of anybody that's got that theory in mind so hopefully it'll have some sort of I mean you that you can see through the discussion chapters the journey that my participants went on from where they were at the very beginning, not knowing what they had in common, um, believing everything they'd been through in life was their own fault. They internalized everything. And if you see that whole journey towards the end where they had like developed that critical consciousness, they realized what they had in common and they actually seen 
how the school system reproduced or played a role in reproducing that their inequalities, their lived inequalities. Yeah, it is. It's amazing to see the sort of transformation that they went through. What I noticed then was obviously we we get to see one another while we're recording the the podcast. Um, and you got quite animated when you were talking about the different groups. That, you know what impact you hope and and it was the the policymakers you certainly mentioned there were other teachers and things like that. So I've got a feeling that each one of those groups might be kind of different for this next question. Okay. And that really is what's the key messages from your book? And I, I get the feeling they might be different for each one of those groups. I don't know. Um, key messages were. I think how teachers can um, implement a form of critical education in the space that they have in the daytime. So not just necessarily following um, the curriculum as it is sort of setting those. I mean, I, I hear it now setting children, young people up to fail. There are spaces within the day for teachers to become critical educators to empower students to sort of develop that knowledge and become um create new knowledge if you like so they they develop the knowledge and contribute to knowledge moving forward and if we gave you some infinite funding and some magic wand what would you do with that do you think to to encourage or support those teachers um I think, to be honest with you, I mean, where my thinking's at at the moment in terms of like since I've been in the role that I'm in and all the students I've talked to and there's been teachers that I've spoken to as well. um, A lot of things come down to experience. So teachers don't know how to sort of implement critical methods if you like they don't know what they can and can't do in that respect you know how much should we do in terms of empowering students to become obviously creators of new knowledge so for me I'd like to sort of maybe develop programs with teachers that you can I don't know boil it down to the bare bones if you like so you can build up the experience and the confidence within them to be able to go out and teach more effectively I'm guessing I don't know whether more effectively is quite the right wording for it but yeah (laughs) that sounds like a good plan right go no the (laughs) so actually yeah where's next for you what what's next on the on the journey plan do you think have you got well yes um I'm kind of in a few different ponds at the moment and it's kind of known which one I'm gonna sort of sit with um so when I obviously started my role in the library um we got funding for research to look at the motivation and engagement levels of HE students in an FE college um because many of them don't use the library services but there's not enough in there to sort of equips HE students if you like um so that's one avenue that we could could explore but I'm, I am very interested in motivational and um, engagement levels of learners even the ones that are not necessarily in a learning environment environment at the moment it'll be sort of encouraging others to come forward and say yes look what we offer and we've got all, all this that you've got access to and this would be a really good thing for you sort of thing so I've got that um at the moment that should should be starting we haven't started it yet but it should be starting soon um and then again it comes down to 
I started writing my own courses before I actually started working for the Bedford College Group. And I kind of put it on the back burner with the book. But it goes back to, again, motivation and engagement and boiling everything down to experiences and what values and beliefs people have and sort of building it up from there. I've got that avenue to go down at the moment as well. So I'm really interested in a lot of like what students are saying, the courses that they're on how some courses are not for them. It's not quite set up how they thought it would be. And obviously it's very sort of rigid in how we have to deliver things. So yeah, there's a few things I want to do. I do want to stick with my research and I definitely, I need to sort of narrow down where I'm going, but at the minute I'm keeping my options open. You certainly like to be busy. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm always busy. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I know, I was just thinking that. I've said to Sharon before, she's not convinced though. She should have a YouTube channel to disseminate this stuff to teachers but tiktok for the young people for those younguns that's what you need to be on doing your critical education yes i have given it real considerate thought and i am in the process of um sorting it out if you like that's where I'm at at the moment I mean I have got so many notes to get through that I've taken from just having informal chats with students and teachers through sort of reflecting on my own observations of how I see things working sort of in that teaching environment um so there's many 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 topics that I can actually discuss and go through but I've got to now find the time to sit down and sort it all out and so yeah YouTube TikTok it it will come Uh, well, look, um, we won't keep you because obviously you've got um, world domination to deal with tonight before you, <laughs> before you go to bed, Sharon. Um, yes. so, but thank you so much for joining us on uh, on the podcast. It's been great to hear you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.